Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 30. Last week, I covered the Hyksos, who essentially ruled the Nile Delta region during the Second Intermediate Period. These Canaanite immigrants made up the 14th and 15th dynasties, which ran concurrent with the native Egyptian 13th, 16th, and 17th dynasties. If you missed that episode, you should really, really go back and give that one a listen. And all of that gets me to the beginning of the Egyptian New Kingdom, and towards the end of the 16th century BC. And it's during the New Kingdom, at least by date, when it's thought that the Exodus occurred. But before starting the New Kingdom, I need to wrap up the last couple of rulers of the Second Intermediate Period, as they set the stage for this pivotal time. So let's get started. The second to the last ruler of the Hyksos 15th dynasty was Apepi, who reigned for almost 40 years, at least according to the Turin list. His time on the throne began around 1575 BC. At the start of his rule, the Hyksos territory was well outside of the delta, and his empire somewhat peacefully coexisted with the Theban 17th dynasty to the south. It was at least peaceful enough to permit trade. But, over the course of his four decades on the throne, the Thebans slowly drove the Hyksos back towards the delta. Later in Egyptian history, specifically in the Ramsesside period, Apepi was noted as being monotheistic, which was obviously different than the traditional Egyptian religious practice. These later inscriptions further note that he worshipped their deity Set, and in their view, Set represented many things, including the desert, disorder, violence, and foreigners. It's probably the last part that is the reason they associated Apepi's monotheism with Set. But keep in mind that when all a people understand is polytheism, the concept of monotheism will be completely foreign, and therefore a bit difficult to comprehend. Or to state simpler, we tend to view the world including people different from us, through our own lens, our own experience. After Apepi was Kamudi, who would end up being the last Hyksos ruler before they were driven out of Egypt. He ruled for about a year, around 1541 BC, and it's possible he took the throne after the Hyksos had been run out of Egypt and were under siege at Sheruan, in the Negev Desert. Either way, he was defeated by the Theban king, Amos I, and his defeat marks the end of the Second Intermediate Period, and the beginning of the New Kingdom. And I need to back up a bit and cover the last couple of rulers of the Theban Kingdom, before Amos was Kamos, who ruled for about five years around 1550 BC. It was Kamos's father, Sikinru Tau, who began the true offenses against the Hyksos and his father may have died in a battle against the Hyksos. Kamos picked up where his father left off, and continued to drive the Canaanite kings back towards the delta. But there's a little curious thing, and that is that he may have been too young to truly rule, and it was his mother, acting as regent, that led the 17th dynasty to victory. But real evidence of this is scant. What is more clear is his desire to drive the Hyksos out. In his words, to smite them. Before he would take on the Hyksos, he would fight the Nubians, 
who were to the south of Thebes. It's unclear what became of this campaign, as the Nubians continue to exist as a separate people. Overall, the fighting appears to have done little more than to firm up the border. In his third year, he set out on a military campaign against the Hyksos. He had his army sail north on the Nile from Thebes. His first stop was the outpost of Nefrusi, which was occupied by Egyptian troops loyal to the Hyksos. His troops attacked the fortification and quickly overran it. All of this was spelled out on the Canovan tablet. Unfortunately, especially for us historians, this tablet is broken off after this passage. But from other records of his typical strategy, we can make a few assumptions and speculations about what happened next. As his army moved north, they could easily take small villages and defeat the smaller Hyksos garrisons. If a city resisted too much, he would simply bypass it and take over the city directly to the north. Such a tactic would allow him to travel rapidly down the Nile, gaining territory very quickly. But he never made it to the Hyksos capital of Avaris, and maybe not even to the delta itself. Despite this, he did regain much of their previously lost territory. Like I briefly covered last week, while in the northern part of Egypt, Kamos's soldiers captured a messenger who was attempting to relay a note from the Hyksos king Apepi to his ally, the ruler of Cush, aka Nubia, requesting the Nubian support against the Thebans. Kamos sent some troops to occupy and destroy the Bahariya oasis in the western desert. This oasis was a vital stopping point on the route between the Hyksos and Nubia. Due to his quick thinking, the Hyksos would not be receiving any support from their ally. Kamos then sailed upstream, south, towards Thebes, arriving there for a victory celebration. But he wasn't done. He would again take the fight to the Nubians, this time attempting to retake the fortress of Buin, which the Nubians had recaptured from Kamos, perhaps while he was distracted fighting the Hyksos. Sometime after fighting the Hyksos, and perhaps before attacking the Nubians, Kamos appointed his younger brother Amos as his co-regent. Which is a curious appointment. Like he knew his end was near. Amos would serve in this co-regent position for only about a year before Kamos would die. Amos I is considered the founder of the 18th dynasty, which may make you wonder why it's considered a different dynasty when both his father and brother were rulers in the 17th, especially since dynasties usually only changed numbers when rulers are from different families. In this case, it's because Amos is also considered the first ruler of the New Kingdom. The historian Manetho, writing much later during the Ptolemaic dynasty, considered the final expulsion of the Hyksos and the restoration of native Egyptian rule over the whole country as a significant enough event to warrant the start of a new dynasty. And, to remain anchored to the history found in Exodus, this is the time when the Israelites were considered to be in Egyptian slavery. So, these people, perhaps the last rulers of the Second Intermediate Period, are the first few rulers of the New Kingdom. One of them is perhaps the same pharaoh mentioned in Exodus. And with that quick reminder, back to Amos. Like his brother, he was the son of Pharaoh Sikimru-Tau and brother of the last pharaoh of the 17th dynasty, Kamos. 
During the reign of either his father or grandfather, Thebes rebelled against the Hyksos, who at the time ruled most of Egypt. When he was about seven years old, his father was killed, potentially from wounds suffered in battle. Then, just three years later, sometime around 1549 BC, when he was about 10, his brother died of unknown causes. This was about the same time that Apepi, the Hyksos king, died. Given his young age when he assumed the throne, his mother, Ehotep, reigned as regent until the young king was old enough to reign solely. So, it was his mother who played a large part in defeating the Hyksos. But he was the pharaoh credited with finally driving the Hyksos from the land, at least from the Delta region, after about 30 years of off and on again warfare. In doing so, he restored Theban rule over all of Egypt, but he didn't stop there. He also successfully reasserted Egyptian power in its former territories in Nubia and Canaan. Sometime later, during his 22nd year on the throne, he sent a campaign to Jay and Byblos in Canaan. Jay is located between Lebanon and Israel. His campaign may have gone as far as the Euphrates, but details of this expedition are scarce. And the details for most of the information that we do have is from someone who served in the Egyptian navy and did not take part in the land expedition. So, it's a bit suspect. Archaeological evidence from southern Canaan tends to show that the Egyptians conducted campaigns only to break the power of the Hyksos by destroying their cities, but they did not intend to conquer Canaan. Supporting this are many sites that were completely destroyed and not rebuilt during the period. The theory is that a pharaoh intending conquest and future tributes would probably not conduct such a scorched earth campaign. Amos's campaigns in Nubia were recorded better. Soon after the first Nubian campaign, a Nubian leader named Atah rebelled against Amos, but he was quickly defeated. After this attempt, an anti-Theban Egyptian named Teton gathered many rebels in Nubia, but he too was conquered. At the same time, Amos set about creating a working government, reorganizing the administration of the country. He would then go on to reopen quarries and mines. Amos restored Egyptian rule over Nubia, which was controlled from a new administrative center located at Buon. When re-establishing the national government, Amos appears to have rewarded various local princes that supported both his cause and that of his pre-dynastic predecessors, and in doing so, he upheld a long-standing Egyptian tradition. And, in a move that surely surprised no one, he moved the capital to Thebes. But, besides being his home, the physical location made sense from a strategic perspective since it was located at the center of the country. This allowed a relatively strong and quick response to the Nubian threat from the south and the continued threat of Canaan to the northeast. In reorganizing the government, a professional civil service was created. In this administration were many scribes who set about filling the royal archives with records, records which we rely on to this day to understand the era. He also re-established trade routes and began massive construction projects. Projects of a scope that had not been seen since the Middle Kingdom. 
Amos may have devoted a tenth of all productive output towards the service of the traditional gods, which probably means that this revenue was channeled to massive projects. In the southern part of the country, he began constructing temples mostly built of brick. In the north, so Upper Egypt, he built additions to the existing temples. According to an inscription, he used white limestone to begin construction of a temple of Ptah. The limestone was sourced from reopened Egyptian limestone quarries. This limestone was also used for monuments. At these quarries, Asiatic cattle were used to haul the stone, the latter indicating trade with parts of Western Asia, aka Canaan, or perhaps cattle left over from the Hyksos. His construction projects included temples, monuments, and the like. And this boom may have continued through the final seven years of his reign, but it could have also been his successor that carried it forward. And the political changes were not alone. There was a religious shift, too. Thebes effectively became the religious center of the country. Amun, up until this point, was a local deity and was credited for their victory over the Hyksos. With the rise in Theban power, the worship of Amun grew too. The temple complex north of Thebes on the east bank of the Nile grew more important. All of this was at the expense of Ra, whose cult center was at Heliopolis. Several stele from the period described the religious work done by Amos as a benefactor to the temple. On these, it's claimed that he rebuilt the pyramids of his predecessors at Thebes that had previously been destroyed by some sort of storm. What was this storm? A storm strong enough to destroy a pyramid? Perhaps the Thera eruption in the Aegean Sea damaged these structures. I covered this volcanic event many episodes ago. The exact date of the eruption has not been precisely determined, at least not yet. But it's recently generally thought to have occurred in the neighborhood of 1600 BC, plus or minus a little over 100 years which puts it in the right time period. As for trade, and since the Nile Delta and Nubia were both back under Egyptian control, the kingdom once again had access to materials. Gold and silver from Nubia, lapis lazuli from Central Asia, cedar from Lebanon, and turquoise from the Sinai. Then there was Crete, the largest Greek isle. The nature of the relationship between Egypt and the Greeks is not yet known but some artifacts indicate the two were in contact. And Egypt considered the Aegean Sea to be part of its empire. Also, glassmaking is thought to have developed during Amos's reign. And when you think about all the glass in our modern lives, the importance of this discovery cannot be easily overstated. And if it were going to develop anywhere, Egypt certainly makes sense. After all, they had an abundance of the primary raw material, sand. And they were technologically ahead of probably every other civilization at the time. One of Amos' accomplishments was the building of the last pyramid built by native Egyptian rulers. The pyramid as a structure would be abandoned by subsequent pharaohs of the New Kingdom for both practical and religious reasons. While Giza offered plenty of room to build pyramids, the Theban geography was quite different. Thebes is rocky and bordered by cliffs, 
and burials in the surrounding desert would be prone to flooding. Pyramids were also associated with the sun god Ra, who was, like I mentioned, of declining importance, being replaced by a moon. And one of the primary meanings of a moon's name was the Hidden One, which gave theological license to the rulers to hide their tombs, essentially by separating the pharaoh's tomb from his mortuary temple, and frustrating grave robbers. This would be part of the reason so many later rulers, like King Tut, would be found with relatively well-preserved tombs. The remainder of the New Kingdom rulers would be buried in rock-cut shaft tombs in the Valley of the Kings. Almost probably reigned for 25 years, at least according to Manetho, and he would have been right, at least in this case. An examination of Amos's mummy indicates that he died when he was about 35, which, if he took the throne when he was 10, then a reign of 25 years makes sense. But the mummy found in the tomb may not have been him, or may show he was not really a descendant of his predecessors. And while I normally wouldn't go into this much detail, remember, this may have been the pharaoh in Exodus, and it also provides insight into how such research is done. The mummy was of a man, about 5 feet 6 inches tall, or 165 centimeters. It had a small face with no real defining features, except for slightly prominent front teeth. Such teeth may have been an inherited family trait, as this characteristic can be seen in some female mummies of the same family, along with the mummy of his descendant, Thutmos II. His neck and chest indicate unusual strength. The head is small in proportion to the chest, the forehead low and narrow, the cheekbones project, and the hair is thick and wavy. The face appears to resemble the mummy of Sikinru Tao, who is thought to be his father. The resemblance may have been clearly seen to his contemporaries and would have given him a claim to the throne. But the identity of this mummy was put into doubt in 1980 when Dr. James Harris, a professor of orthodontics at the University of Michigan's School of Dentistry, along with Egyptologist Edward Wendt from the University of Chicago, examined his x-rays. You see, Harris had been allowed to take x-rays of all the presumed royal mummies at the Cairo Museum. While history records Amos I as being the son, or maybe the grandson, of Sekinro Tau, the craniofacial morphology of the two mummies are quite different. It is also different from that of the female mummy identified as Ams, Nefertari, believed to be his sister. These inconsistencies, when combined with the fact that this mummy was not posed with arms crossed over the chest, as was the fashion for the period of royal male mummies, led them to conclude that this was not likely a royal mummy. Who knows? the I was succeeded by his oldest son, Amenhotep I. A few researchers believe that towards the very end of his reign, Amenhotep was appointed as co-regent, serving alongside his father. Which of course gets me to Amenhotep, who reigned between 1526 and 1506 BC. But his path to the throne was not as clear-cut as you might expect. He had at least two older brothers, both of whom must have died before their father. So, growing up, he was never expected to end up as the ruler. And despite his father building up the ranks of the scribes, 
his reign is poorly documented. But we do know he continued his father's mission to rebuild the temples in Upper Egypt. Also during his reign, he led campaigns in Nubia, sending an invasion army to gain territory and push the kingdom's boundary further south, perhaps gaining territory as far south as the Nile's third cataract. This is a place that is now well into the country of Sudan. He may have also led a campaign into Kush. Interestingly, there are no recorded campaigns in Canaan during Amenhotep's reign. But his reign did make its mark on the historic literary world. The Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is a loose collection of text, consisting of a number of magical spells thought to assist a dead person's journey through the underworld and into the afterlife, is believed to have reached its final form during Amenhotep's reign. The Ebers Papyrus, which is our primary source on information concerning ancient Egyptian medicine, also seems to date to his reign. It appears that during his time on the throne, the first water clock was invented, which marked a dramatic shift in the perception of time and therefore the world. Previously, the Egyptian hour was not a fixed amount of time, but was measured as one-twelfth of the night, which meant as seasons changed, so did the length of an hour. This practice did not change with the invention of this water clock, but it did get a little more scrutiny. Also like his father, he commissioned many large construction projects, most of religious or civil nature. But there were no sizable projects in Lower Egypt, only in Middle and Upper, along with at least one in Nubia. Amenhotep was the first king of Egypt to build a mortuary temple some distance from his tomb, probably in order to thwart grave robbers. And the exact location has yet to be identified. An inscription dated to the reign of Ramses IX notes that it was intact, but made no mention of the actual location, lost to the passage of time. His mummy, though, has been found, and why it was separated from the tomb is debatable. It appears that it was relocated once, maybe multiple times, by priests intent on keeping it intact, and in that regard, they appeared to have been successful. Owing to its superb face mask, his mummy is the only royal mummy which has not yet been unwrapped and examined by modern Egyptologists. The common belief is that he had a single son named Amamahat, but unfortunately for the dynasty, the son died in his youth, perhaps while still an infant, and this left him with no legitimate, meaning blood-related, heir. So, he was succeeded by Thutmose I, who was his brother-in-law, the husband of his sister. Well, the woman many believed to be his sister. The proof of an actual relationship is scant. But Thutmose may also have been a nephew. And he may or may not have served for a short period as co-regent. But if he did, it would help to explain the peaceful transfer of power. In the end, relative or not, co-regent or not, Thutmose was his successor. And Thutmose wasn't some bum off the street, of course, but he was a senior military commander. Amenhotep died in 1504 BC, which was about 50 years before the Exodus. And backing up a little, in the narrative found in the Book of Exodus, 
Moses was in Midian for 40 years prior to returning to Egypt. So, working under the assumption that the 1450 BC date is somewhat correct, this means his banishment would have occurred around the time of Amenhotep's death, give or take a few years, which is probably a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up the New Kingdom with Thutmose. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. And for those of you that haven't, get to it. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss any. Thanks for listening and have a great week.